those of you who are new, uh, my name is Jamie. Uh, I am uh, the guy who gets the privilege uh, most Sundays to open up God's Word with the church gathered. Excited to do, do that momentarily. Uh, we're going to get after it. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover. I believe this might be one of the lengthiest passages in our study of the book of Acts thus far, um, yet one of the most uh, eye-opening extraordinary moments in the history of the early New Testament church. If you're new, I think you gathered this from what I just said. We're working our way through the book of Acts. We've been doing that for a couple of months now. We're talking about a book filled with imprisonments and escape from prison, magic, miracles, voyages at sea, voyages at sea gone poorly in the name of in the form of shipwrecks, snake bites, comedy, tragedy. This book of the Bible has everything. Uh, If you've never read it, you should give it a run from cover to cover and and then just keep hanging out with us uh, over the course of the next several months. We're talking about a book that I've said week in and week out, tells the story of a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God, turning the world upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the book of Acts. This morning, we get a front row seat as I said before, to one of the most significant events in all of church history, namely the historical account of the first post-resurrection Christian martyr. So with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Incredible scene that we're going to dive into. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the rows in front of you. You can grab one of those. Take that with you if you don't own a Bible. Call that an early Christmas present. Let me pray for us, and, and we'll get going this morning. God, I desperately need your help to be of any service to this room full of people. Thank you for a word that is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, that can pierce down to the deepest parts of who we are. I pray that you would do that this morning, Holy Spirit, that you are the same Holy Spirit that we see in the book of Acts. Again, I've said this before, if we sat with that long enough, it just might wreck us for our good. I pray that you would wreck us for our good this morning. I pray that we would find ourselves deeply dependent upon you, Holy Spirit, for power. I pray that we would find ourselves running to the well of your grace, God turning from broken cisterns of religiosity, hollow, empty ritual. God, would you free us? Would you fill us with greater joy and hope as a result of our time in your word this morning? Would you do it for your glory and for the joy of your people? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So verse 8, picking up the story where we left off last week, we're told, and Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. If you go back um, to to Stephen's commissioning at the beginning of chapter 7, or I should say the beginning of chapter 6, Stephen is described as a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Here, we're told that Stephen is full of grace and power. whatever, Whatever fills you is ultimately what ends up controlling you. If you think about it, 
If you're filled with jealousy, like the religious leaders in the book of Acts, you'll be controlled by that jealousy. If you're filled with bitterness, you'll be controlled by that bitterness. If you're filled with fear and anxiety, you'll be controlled by that fear and anxiety. When we fight to believe the gospel, which if you've been around this church for very long, you've heard us use that phrase before, we're fighting to experience the fullness of faith. We're fighting to experience the fullness of God's grace. We're fighting to experience the fullness of the Spirit's power so that in the words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, so that the love of Christ controls us, not those other things, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's Stephen. Controlled not ultimately by jealousy or fear or rage, but by the love of Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Right, we've seen this happen on a few occasions at this point. This shouldn't be too surprising to us. Stephen's taken the gospel to the Greek-speaking synagogues at this point, made up of Hellenists who represent those places of exile of the Jewish people, and he not shockingly encounters a little bit of opposition here. Perhaps the most fascinating location mentioned in this particular part of the passage is that of Cilicia because that was home of the Apostle Paul. That's, that's Paul's hometown. At this point, one of the most insolent opponents of Christianity will see him converted just a couple of chapters down the road. But right now, one of the very ones disputing with Stephen here in verse 9. And we're told, moving on, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That Jesus had said, going back to Luke's gospel account, of which this is the sequel, the book of Acts, um, that they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, Jesus had said to his followers, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. As we've seen with the Apostle Peter on several occasions throughout the book of Acts at this point, Stephen is emboldened by the Spirit, given words and wisdom by Jesus Christ himself, which doesn't mean that we don't need to be good students of the Scriptures. As we'll see in just a moment, Stephen knows his Bible really, really, really well. It does mean, and we can be encouraged by this, that we can engage in evangelistic conversations with confidence, knowing that the same God who empowered Stephen with courage and wisdom is with you and me. It's amazing. Verse 11 tells us, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. That 
Like the apostles in previous chapters of the book of Acts, Stephen is put on trial on the basis of trumped up charges and false witnesses. He's declared to be a blasphemer, speaking against God's place and God's word, the temple and the law, which was to speak against God himself. Keep in mind, this is a group of people who are convinced of their right standing with God based on lifeless, empty, religious externals. Amazingly, because this is the irony of God. Amazingly, as Stephen is being accused of belittling Moses, notice that God causes Stephen's face to shine just like Moses' did back in the book of Exodus as he came down from Mount Sinai. That's cool. Exodus chapter 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. That Stephen's shining face is a visual affirmation that God is with him, just like he was with Moses. That Stephen is not belittling Moses, but rather explaining the fullness of what Moses' ministry and message was ultimately declaring. Verse 1 of chapter 7, we're told, and the high priest said, are these things so? Like, are you really so bold as to belittle the law and the temple? To which Stephen replies with the longest speech in the book of Acts. I hope you drank a big cup of coffee this morning. And because it's such a lengthy and complex argument, I'm going to go ahead and give away the ending from the, from, from the beginning. Here, here's essentially the crux of what Stephen is about to declare. He's about to declare, you're saying that I'm against the law and the temple, but I'm saying to you that I'm for the law and the temple as shadows which find their ultimate reality in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment. Not only that, I'm also saying that you're not for the law and the temple because you've rejected and murdered Jesus, whom the law and the temple were pointing to all along. That's what Stephen's going to say over the course of, I don't know, 50-something verses roughly. In other words, Stephen, in the one and same speech, finds a way to both acquit himself and indict his audience. It's quite amazing. Declaring that it's the religious leaders who are the ones who are truly on trial. It's the religious leaders who are the ones who are truly belittling the law and the temple. It's the religious leaders who don't really understand their Bibles well. And, and here's how Stephen does it. He, he briefly, if you can call this passage brief, he briefly walks through some of the high points in Israel's history, starting with Abraham, then moving on to Joseph and Moses, and finally David and Solomon. We're talking about some serious biblical gunslingers here. Right? He begins in verse two by saying, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Notice that God is the primary actor here. See it over and over and over again. Verse two, God appears. 
Verses three and six, God speaks. Verse four, God moves. Verse five, God promises. Verse seven, God judges. Verse eight, God gives a covenant. The the focus is, is ultimately on God here. We see God on the move in the life of Abraham, a man whose life predated the building of the temple and the giving of the law, a man to whom God was pleased to reveal himself way back in the days of Mesopotamia, that God's presence has always been with his people. His presence has never been limited to a temple built by human hands. Luke's gonna go on to say this in Acts chapter 17 that his presence and glory are not limited to a particular zip code. Stephen, what he's doing is he's exposing the false security of this religious crowd, those trusting in the outward symbols for a right standing with God. And he goes on to do it by moving from Abraham to Joseph. Verse nine, he says, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into, uh, into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, a great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. That as with Abraham, Stephen continues to show God on the move in the life of his leaders, his appointed rescuers, a man who spent much of his life in pagan Egypt where there was no temple of God, his life predating the building of the temple and the giving of the law, just like Abraham. And yet verse nine declares that God was with him. But but notice Stephen begins to incorporate a second strand into his argument here. Notice that he begins to, to say something else here. He's not just looking to show that God's hand was upon his appointed leaders slash rescuers. He's also looking to show that Israel has a reputation for rejecting those very leaders, those very rescuers, which they're continuing to do here in Acts chapter six. They've rejected and murdered Jesus, and they're now threatening his spirit-empowered followers. In Joseph's day, it was his jealous brothers. There's nothing new under the sun. In Acts chapter six, it's jealousy that's driving the religious leaders to respond the way they do to Stephen. Verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, and now he shifts to Moses, at this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. That Stephen continues to, to walk through uh, Old Testament Israel's history now focusing on the greatest of all the Hebrew prophets, making the same point that God was with Moses, providentially preserving his young life in the midst of this infant-killing pagan wasteland, preparing him for this calling that he had on Moses' life to free God's people from bondage to Egypt. And he goes on 
to point out some other things in Moses' life. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Stephen's continuing to to develop his argument, showing Israel's ongoing reputation for rejecting God's appointed leaders, God's appointed rescuers. There's no question that Moses was called by God to to lead Israel out of Egyptian enslavement and bondage and oppression. Beautiful in God's sight, verse 20, yet scorned by the ones he came to save. Sound familiar? Verse 25, incredible words when you think about Jesus. Moses supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Just like the religious leaders with respect to Jesus here in Acts chapters six and seven. Verse 30, Stephen continues. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at his sight and he drew near to look. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. That God meets with Moses at the burning bush. God speaks to Moses. God calls Moses to be an instrument of redemption. Again, God is present with his servant Moses, having called him to lead this glorious rescue mission. He's just building his case. Same theme. He's just walking through the Old Testament to make the point. Verse 35, significant part of this passage. He says, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. That Stephen's saying, Moses was sent as both a ruler and redeemer. Moses led the Israelites out. He performed signs and wonders for 40 years, yet they rejected him. It's brilliant what Stephen's doing here because he knows that that ruler and and redeemer language finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, our perfect savior and king, whom the religious leaders have rejected and continue to reject. Major theme in the book of Acts. Verse 37, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. In other words, 
Moses and God got a little time at the burning bush together. Pretty power-packed devotional, you would imagine, right? A little better than Starbucks. A God made clear in this moment that he would one day raise up a prophet like Moses. Stephen knows that prophet like Moses to be Jesus. We talked about this in our Hebrews series, if you remember. Luke chapter 24 Jesus, in the wake of his resurrection, is on the road to Emmaus with a couple of uh, disciples, and we're told that he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to those two disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's classic Jesus storybook Bible lens on the Old Testament. See it elsewhere in the scriptures. Jesus says the following words to the Jews who are persecuting him in John chapter five. He says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he, Moses, wrote of me, Jesus. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In other words, Jesus Christ is the subject matter of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus is the greater Moses, whom the religious leaders standing before Stephen have rejected and continue to reject, just like the Israelites in Moses' day rejected Moses himself. Stephen is, is making a point here that it's not he who is against Moses, it's those who have rejected the one Moses foreshadowed and spoke of who are actually against Moses as we look in on this scene in Acts chapter 7. He continues on. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. He's talking about Moses there. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a golden calf in those days, we're told, and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. That Stephen's doing a couple of things here that I think are significant. One, he continues to make his argument that Israel has a reputation for rejecting God-appointed rulers and redeemers. In this case, thrusting Moses aside, verse 39, and turning to idols, which, which makes you wonder what, what the connection is for Stephen's audience here. Like, what's their golden calf? That'd be a really good question for any of us in, in this room to bat around this morning, wouldn't it? What's their golden calf? Stephen's being accused of, of speaking words against the law when really what he's seeking to do is to show that the law finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, that God gave the law, yet the hearts of the wilderness-wandering Israelites were given over to heart idolatry. In other words, they couldn't keep the law. It's that, it's that picture we've talked about before of the mirror and the water. Right? You can look in a mirror and see that you're dirty, but no one in their right mind then walks up to the wall, takes the mirror off of the wall, and rubs their face to try to get clean, right? That's, we don't do that. We're happy that the mirror shows us what needs cleaning up, but then we run to the water of the sink or the shower to clean ourselves of whatever dirtiness we see in that mirror. In the same regard, the law can show you that you're dirty, 
that you need cleaning up, but the law can't clean you. The law can't rescue you. Only Jesus can save you by fulfilling the law perfectly on your behalf. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. The Pharisees here in Acts chapter 7 perceived themselves to have perfectly sufficient feet and hands. That was part of the problem. Capable of living a life that God would actually be impressed with. Failing to see the the golden calves of power and comfort and approval and self-preservation in their own lives to go back to some of the the prior moments of persecution, the root idols that their their very own hearts had embraced and manufactured. Even the, the religious elite, the apostle Paul, once he's rescued, will go on to say, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's pretty amazing. In addition, the indictment on the religious crowd was actually worse than the indictment on the wilderness wandering Israelites because the wilderness wandering Israelites may have rejected Moses, but the religious leaders here in Acts chapter six and seven have rejected the greater Moses, Jesus Christ. See people doing it all the time in hyper-religious contexts. The one who Moses and the law were, were pointing to. They, they've rejected their, their only hope of presenting a perfect law-keeping resume to God, namely the law-keeping resume of Jesus gifted to us by grace alone through faith alone. That's the law. What about the other indictment on Stephen? What about the temple? Stephen's being accused of speaking words, not just against the law, but the temple. And so he goes on to say, toward the end of his speech, verse 44 He says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? He's talking about the the Old Testament tabernacle and temple here in in Israel's history that just as as God had given the law, he had also given the tabernacle. He had given the temple, neither of which were bad things, but Stephen is making the point that that God's presence cannot be confined to, to a place, to a building, even the great Jerusalem temple. Nor does the presence of the temple mean that God owes the people his blessing. But just as the law was pointing to the need for Jesus as the perfect law-keeping sacrifice for sinners, so the tabernacle and temple were pointing to Jesus. If you think about the descriptors of the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, you had the lampstand, you had the consecrated bread, you, you had the aroma of incense filling the place, you had the, the tablets of stone that sat in the Ark of the Covenant, you had the mercy seat, you had the the veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies. What Stephen is ultimately seeking to argue is that Jesus is the true lampstand. He's the light of the world. Jesus is the true consecrated bread. He's the bread of life. That his words of intercession, Jesus is it as he sits at the right hand of the Father, are sweet-smelling incense to the Father. That his He perfectly fulfilled every command written on those tablets of stone that sat in the Ark of the Covenant. 
that his atoning death is the fulfillment of everything that the mercy seat symbolized. That when Jesus died on the cross, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn, a visible declaration that, that we now have access to the presence of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can confidently come to God's approachable throne by grace through faith in the finished priestly work of Jesus. We'll get there in a minute, but the Bible is incredible. Stephen takes the religious leaders on this crash course through the Old Testament, declaring that it all points to Jesus, rebuking them for being just like their forefathers. He says this, some of the strongest language in the Bible. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Again, the crux of, of Stephen's argument, you think you're in because you, you possess these things, the land, the law, and the temple, but those are forms of false security for you. You're lawbreakers just like the rest of us. And you've rejected the perfect law-keeping Jesus who's your only hope for salvation as law-breaking rebels. In addition, Stephen says, the temple was all about the presence of God, pointing to the presence of God in Jesus Christ. You've rejected God's presence in rejecting Jesus. Not only that, your fathers were prophet killers and you yourselves murdered the one, namely Jesus, that they were all writing about. It's you guys, Stephen says, not us followers of Christ who have abandoned the root of true Judaism. It's you who disregard the scriptures because you fail to see the Savior whom they point to. You're missing Jesus in all of it. And they all repented and lived happily ever after, right? Not quite. Verse 54 tells us, and when they heard these things, they were enraged. Shocker, right? And they ground their teeth at him. Sounds like my youngest daughter when she doesn't get what she wants. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Can you imagine? And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Sound like somebody we've met before in the Bible? And when he had said this, he fell asleep. First post-resurrection Christian martyr. Remember, Jesus had declared himself to be the light of the world. The light entered the darkness, and the darkness hated the light and did away with it. Stephen is a reflection of Jesus here, similar to Jesus, charged with blasphemy, similar to Jesus, sitting under the accusation of false witnesses as a part of some bogus trial, similar to Jesus, praying for the forgiveness of his executioners, which... By the way, the fact that Stephen prays to Jesus and asks Jesus to forgive his enemies, that's a declaration that Jesus is more than just a prophet. He's God. He's the one who receives prayers, and he's the one who forgives sin. Similar to Jesus, 
Stephen also commits his spirit to God as he dies. I love these words from uh, the poet Alfred Lord Tennyson. He says, speaking about Stephen, he heeded not reviling tones nor sold his heart to idle moans, though cursed and scorned and bruised with stones. But looking upward full of grace, he prayed, and from a happy place, God's glory smote him on the face. Stephen shines the light of the gospel into the darkness of religiosity, and the darkness crucifies the light. But as we've seen over and over again in the early chapters of the book of Acts, the darkness cannot win, and the darkness will not win. Persecution and suffering and opposition, they're all going to continue to ramp up. It keeps happening every single week that we come back to this book of the Bible. But so does the display of God's empowering spirit and the spread of the gospel. Look at the last few verses of this morning's passage. Chapter 8, verse 1, we're told, And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That in the wake of Stephen's martyrdom, the church is no longer able to meet in a concentrated area, forced to scatter into smaller gatherings, which is actually a catalyst for the advancement of the gospel as the, the gospel continues now to begin to go forth into the regions of Judea and Samaria, just like Jesus said that the gospel would go forth all the way back in chapter 1, verse 8. Not only that, notice that Saul is the only hostile opponent to Christianity mentioned by name in this passage, that it's Luke's way of showing that Stephen's prayer for the forgiveness of his very own persecutors would actually be answered as Saul would go on in chapter 9, we'll get there a few weeks from now, to encounter the blinding light of the radiant risen Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and would go on to be one of the greatest church planters in all of church history. No big deal. That's what God does in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. The advancement of the gospel cannot be stopped. You might go, well, what's in this for me? Like, I don't, I don't envision myself making it into Fox's Book of Martyrs anytime soon. Like, what am I supposed to grab hold of when I read a passage like this? What do we do with this as the church, you know, a couple thousand years later on in church history? Similar to previous weeks, probably a number of things. It's a really long passage, right? We probably come up with, I don't know, 30 application points. John Piper would probably come up with 70-something. I'll give you three because we all want to eat lunch today, and I'll try to keep it brief. Number one, what are the implications for the church today? I think this is kind of a no-brainer, and it's one that desperately needs to speak into our context. It's possible to participate in religious activities and miss Jesus in all of it. It's very possible. It's possible to go to the appropriate religious gatherings, i.e. the temple, and check all the right religious boxes, i.e. the law and be hopelessly and eternally lost in the midst of all of it. Now, you can just hear Stephen's sobering words ringing out in the midst of our culturally Christian landscape. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You're checking all of the appropriate religious boxes, and you're missing Jesus in all of it. You perceive yourself to be a morally decent human being, and you're missing Jesus in the midst of all of it. Happens all the time, does it not? The assumption that, that God loves those who uh, attend the occasional church service or 
pray from time to time or engage in a Bible study here or there. It's possible to do all of those things absent of the gospel. Absolutely possible. As a way of seeking to merit God's love and approval, completely missing the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, in the midst of all of it. Let let me show you the contrast, and I think this is sobering to think about it this way. We just sang this song just a few minutes ago. Augustus Toplady, in his hymn, Rock of Ages, penned those famous lyrics, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The song of religious people, like those who killed Stephen, is this. Something in my hand I bring, simply to my works I cling. Those who killed Stephen believe that God loves the good guys, hates the bad guys, be a good guy and God will love you. Gospel says no, there are no good guys and bad guys. There are bad guys in Jesus who came to rescue bad guys like you and me by grace alone. That God's rescue mission is not based on human merit. It's not based on Uh, religious ancestral pedigree. It's not based on intrinsic lovability. It's not based on moral fiber. So that I would say if you've lived your life believing that God feels the way he feels about you based on your own goodness, I pray in this moment that you would see desperately that you're a sinner in need of a savior and that salvation is found in no other name than Jesus Christ. The apostles have been saying it for chapters now that he lived a sinless life that we could never live, even the most well-behaved, religiously impressive among us. He died the sinner's death that we deserve to die as our sins were put upon him. He was punished in our place. Nobody says it better than the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter three, verse eight. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And listen, if you're a Christian in this room, you desperately need this too. I cannot tell you how many conversations It's adding up into the dozens, maybe triple digits at this point, of people both inside our church and and outside of our church in this community who struggle waking up day in and day out, living their lives as if there's some love meter that goes up and down based on religious ritual. If I read my Bible a little bit more, God will feel this way about me, and I forgot to read it, so he must not feel as strongly about me today. Functionally living this, this kind of religiosity in a way that is not only destructive, but miserable, is it not? The gospel says we don't have to live that way. Christian, you don't have to live that way. You can leave this place and you can declare to your own heart and to the hearts of others around you that there is nothing that you have done that would cause God to love you less and there's nothing that you can do that would cause him to love you more He feels the way he feels about you because of Jesus Christ and the merits of Jesus Christ. And so one of my prayers for us as a church is that we would wake up tomorrow and cling to that and believe it because that's true freedom and joy. Secondly, our hearts may be bored, but the Bible is not boring. Stephen shows us that. It's not just a, a book made up of loosely put together stories. It's not ultimately a rule book with things to do and not do. It's a book that tells about 
Jesus Christ and what he's done on our behalf. It's not ultimately a book filled with a bunch of heroes that, that we're meant to seek to emulate our lives after, though there are some heroic people in the Bible, but rather it's, it's one grand redemptive story that points to one capital H hero who holds the entire thing together. Ian Duguid, professor of Old Testament up at Westminster, says it this way. He says, the Old Testament is not primarily a book about ancient history or culture, though it contains many things that are historical and that describe ancient cultures. Centrally, the Old Testament is a book about Christ and more specifically about his sufferings and the glories that will follow. That is, he says, it is a book about the promise of a coming Messiah through whose sufferings God will establish his glorious eternal kingdom. Said it a number of times in this very building. You've got an incredibly diverse book in front of you right now. 66 books written over a couple thousand year span. Roughly 40 human authors. All kinds of walks of life. Kings, philosophers, fishermen, doctors, scholars, peasants. Written in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Made up of historical narratives, songs, poetry, genealogies, letters, population statistics, sermons like this one, architectural specification, you name it, it's in there. And yet, this incredibly diverse book tells one story, one gloriously beautiful story of redemption in Jesus Christ. I mentioned this book just a second ago. If you've never read the Jesus Storybook Bible, I will buy you a copy before the day's out if you tell me. The Bible's a literary masterpiece, inviting us into this real-life fairy tale with Jesus as the hero who holds it all together. Lastly, the suffering of the saints is the seed of the church. We, We see the Holy Spirit at work in Stephen's life such that in his darkest moment, Jesus shone bright like the sun. I don't know about you, that's what I want in my life. One of the hardest things in terms of suffering, hardship, difficulty, is not knowing why you're going through it, isn't it? Have you ever gone through something hard and just the fact that you understand the reason for it gives you something to cling hold to? What Acts chapter seven declares is that the suffering of the saints is the seed of the church. Perhaps you've heard it um, more narrowly spoken in the words of the early church father, Tertullian, who said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Is that true? Yes and amen. But I don't see why we can't broaden that statement a little bit and say that the suffering of the saints is also the seed of the church. That We've talked about this before in this series, that there's something about uh, you going through difficulties in life, dark nights of the soul, you might say, and continuing to declare in the midst of all that that Jesus is enough, that he really is supremely valuable. That messes with people's minds. They don't know what to do with it. So that whenever you go through difficult things, be it suffering, hardship, persecution, you contribute to the spreading of the gospel in a very unique way when you cling to Jesus. Very simply put, that if God can mean martyrdom for good, he can mean whatever difficulty you're going through for good. And Paul declares to us in Romans 8 that that's exactly what he does, right? Here we see that it's for the advancement of the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. And, and, and here's, here's really good news. I'm gonna close with this. Get, get the picture in your mind of Stephen in his dying moment looking up to Jesus Christ. What would he have seen? 
On the one hand, he would have seen the nail-scarred hands that reminded him that his Lord had walked through what he was going through himself. That his God could sympathize with him in the midst of that and was with him. But secondly, those nail-scarred hands belonged to one who was standing at the right hand of the Father. Powerful to carry Stephen through anything because he had risen triumphantly on the other side of his crucifixion. And so will we. And so I would say, whenever you find yourself going through hard things, I think it's a beautiful exercise as a spiritual discipline to see the Jesus that Stephen saw. To see a Jesus with nail-pierced hands who understands what it's like to surround himself with everything that makes this world sad, who knows what it's like to sweat and bleed and be abandoned by those closest to him. He knows a dark night of the soul. In fact, he knew quite a few of them, and yet he's not impotent in the midst of it. He's mighty to carry you through it because he's a triumphant, conquering king. That's the Jesus we get to worship in the next few moments together.